Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger at First Baptist Church, Gulf Breeze, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. So, have you ever thought about how far in your family line you have to go to see dysfunctional family? I mean, just think about it for a moment. Just, yeah, just take, take, like literally it'll probably for most of us take a few seconds, right? The, the fact is, most of us, if not all of us, have dysfunctional families at some level. You might be saying, uh, that level is here. I am the dysfunction, right? I've got good news for you. Dysfunctional families were started with Adam and Eve, Dysfunctional simply means things don't always work right. It means things don't work as they're supposed to. Things aren't working in order. It means that things get out of line and get out of whack. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever looked at, at uh, people who you, you see God moving through and, and, and you're seeing uh, people come to faith in Christ? Preachers are the easiest examples. And you look and you go, man, people know Jesus through them, but they are the scum of the earth, right? Come on, be honest. Have you ever thought about that? I, I've, I've thought that myself, sometimes of myself, right? So the fact is, I had a professor in seminary that said this. He said, God makes straight licks with crooked sticks, if you feel like your family is the dysfunctional poster child and God is going to not be able to use you as much as maybe somebody else, or if you feel like you are the dysfunctional poster child and so you're just a little outside of the ability for God to do something marvelous, let me tell you something. God is a redeeming God. In fact, you are no different in your dysfunctional family history than Jesus himself. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. I want to encourage you today, pull the light, the house lights up if you don't mind. I'm having trouble seeing people's face. I need to know if their eyes are closed because I sometimes can't hear them snoring. And I just need, you know, a little more evidence. So Matthew chapter 1, I want to, um, to help you today by going through one of the most exhilarating passages of Scripture. In Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1 all the way through 17, we have a genealogy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read genealogies, it takes about three begats for me to go. I mean, I just totally zone out. And the wor- you want to know what's worse than reading a genealogy? Hearing somebody read it to you. So I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 17. This is the genealogy of Jesus, all right? Now, I want you to try really, really hard to hang on. And I don't want you to judge me for mispronouncing some of these names because I do not know anybody currently named Jeconiah. And I really certainly don't name, know anybody Eliakim, who's the father of Azor, that sounds like a Marvel comic character to me, all right? So if you don't know what, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, just pretend I am and we'll just move on, right? All right, so Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 1, an account of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's fair enough, right? Now, there's a, 
there's a reason that Matthew begins with this verse. He says he's the son of David and the son of Abraham, that Jesus is of the line of David and Abraham. Here's why. Because there are two covenants that God made in the Old Testament concerning Jesus. The first one is what we know as the Abrahamic covenant. The second one is what we know as the Davidic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is found in Genesis chapter 15. And the covenant essentially is this. I am going to make your descendants more numerous than the sands on the seashore, more numerous than the skies, in, uh, than, the, than the stars in the sky. You will have so many descendants you cannot even count them. And all the nations on the earth are going to be blessed. That goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. And so Abraham looks at God and says, God, I love this covenant. This is fantastic. And in chapter 15, he actually has, has Abraham uh, make a formal cov covenant by taking a, uh, uh, an animal and cutting it in half and then they passed between the two. That was an Old Testament way of making a formal covenant. But it was God who was making the covenant with Abraham rather than Abraham making the covenant with God. It was God's idea. Abraham says to, to God, that's a fantastic blessing. That's a fantastic covenant. There's only one problem. I am old my wife is old. He probably didn't say that out loud. I mean, maybe he did, but if he's smart, he didn't say it too loud because she was probably close to her and that never turns out good. Don't ever do that. My wife is old. No, my wife is wonderfully young and beautiful. Men say that after me. My wife, okay, there you go. So you're smart enough not even to go there, aren't you? So God makes this covenant and Abraham says, we're old, it's impossible. I hear, I hear the words of your mouth, but I'm not seeing this gonna, how this is gonna happen. And God says, essentially, trust me. Trust me. Let me just stop right here. God always likes to redeem the impossible situation. Why does he do that? He does it for two reasons. One, to remind you that he is God. And two, so that you and I won't steal his glory. God doesn't share his glory. God loves to show up when nothing else will do so he can remind us that he is God and we are not. So you have this first covenant, the Abrahamic covenant. The second covenant is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And it's God making a covenant with David. And the covenant goes like this. You will not fail to have a descendant on the throne. And his government or, or his, his kingdom will rule. He is a king who will rule forever and ever and ever. Now hopefully in your mind you did what I just did and went, Hallelujah, hallelujah, and he shall reign forever. That's where that comes from. It's the Davidic promise that God said, I promise you, I make a covenant, not just a promise, but I make a covenant with you. And it's an unbreakable covenant. But here's the beauty of starting this chapter this way. Matthew begins by saying these two covenants God is going to bring to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. But these two covenants have within the story uh, uh, meshed total dysfunction and total disaster and destruction at the hands of men. In other words, how can God do anything good with that person? How can God possibly redeem such an awful condition, such an awful state of affairs? Let me just switch to the punchline here, okay, folks? Your past does not determine who you are. The grace of God determines who you are.
And if you are looking backwards thinking to yourself, I'll never be anything because of where I came from, you just need to stop and listen to what God says. God says if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. If you are in Christ Jesus, you have been redeemed from a former way of life that is a life of death, and you've been given life that is life that is everlasting. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it most abundantly. You've not just been given life, but you've given life, 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 life. Uh, It's not necessarily said that way, but you get the point, right? Life beyond life you could ever know. So very quickly, let's look at this genealogy. I'm going to read it for you, just just because I feel like I need you to wrestle with this, okay? Verse 2, Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Amminadab. Amminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. And Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. That's not so bad, right? But that's not so hard to follow. But wait, there's more. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abijah. Abijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered jo- That'd be a great kid name, by the way. I dare you. If you have a baby, name him Jehoshaphat. I double dare you. That's like naming your boy Sue, Right? For the old people in the room, you know exactly what I meant. The rest of you, just let it, you know, right? Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Joram fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jotham. Jotham fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Amon. Amon fathered Josiah. Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Take a break. Just turn the person next to you and say, we got 14 generations left. That's it. All right? Hang on for 14 more, that's it. Here we go, verse, seven, or verse 12. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel. <laughs> you work on that one. Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel fathered Abiud. Abiud fathered Eliakim. Eliakim fathered Azor. Azor fathered Zadok. Zadok fathered Akim. Akim, God bless you. Akim fathered, I don't know where that came from. Actually, I think it was a movie. Anyways, sorry. Again, ADD, blame it on that. Hakim fathered Eliud. Eliud fathered Eleazar. Eleazar fathered Mathan. Mathan fathered Jacob. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Christ, 14 generations. So what's cool about this is you have three uh, three, um, sections of 14 generations, which of 14 generations is seven and seven, right? So if you multiply 14, or if you add 14 and 14 and 14, how many you get? 42. 42 generations from Abraham until Jesus. When you're listening to this now, you're probably going, wow, man, this is just exciting stuff. 
But if you were a Jew and you were listening to this generations ago, you probably would have had some stories come to mind because the Jews were known for passing down oral tradition. They were known for, matter of fact, most, most cultures were this way, passing down the stories of their forefathers and their forefathers' fathers. And so you would have recognized some of these stories. Now, we're not going to go through all of them, I promise. But let me, just, let me just give you an idea of the gross dysfunction of the family of Jesus. Okay? Let's begin with Abraham. Abraham was doing pretty good because he, the Bible says that Abraham had faith in God and he was considered righteous. But Abraham, if you recall lied about who his wife was twice he lied about his wife Sarah twice and he let a king take his own wife and he almost caused the king to die and and, and when the king found out he said why'd you lie to me you've brought disaster and calamity take everything that you want and get out of here he was dysfunctional in that he didn't actually really believe God. He believed God, but he kind of didn't believe God because he said, Lord, you tell me I'm getting this, this promise and yet I'm barren. And God said, I'm going to do it. Said, okay, God, I'll trust you, but I'm old. His wife certainly did not believe because his wife gave him a, a, a concubine to have another child. And that child was who? Ishmael. And so he was raising this child from the wife that was given, or not raising, but he had this child from, a, from a, 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 essentially a, a, a concubine that his wife gave to him to fulfill God's promise, you know, because God always needs us to help him fulfill God's promise, right? And then there was conflict between the two women, and so they ran out. And then finally, God gave them Isaac. So we're back square. So Abraham didn't have crazy dysfunction, but he also wasn't a saint. He had some things going on, right? Isaac, if you'll remember, was David's, or excuse me, was uh, Abraham's only child in terms of from, uh, uh, from his wife Sarah. As such, he loved him differently. And the Bible says that somewhere around 12 years old, God said to Abraham, take your son, and he said it specifically, your only son whom you love and offer him as a sacrifice to me. Now, I don't know what happened between when God said, take your only son and when they started walking up the hill. But I do know that if it were me, I would have a sleepless night, wouldn't you? He wrestled, I don't know if he did or not, but I'm just imagining he wrestled with obedience or trying to run away. But nevertheless, he obeyed God and he walked him up the mountain. And the Bible says that his son Isaac looked at the father and said, Father. Okay, he didn't say it that way, but I mean, <laughs> he, would have, he would have said, Father, I see, the, I see the, the fire and I see the wood for the sacrifice, but I don't see a sacrifice. And Abraham's only reply was, the Lord will provide. And I'm thinking in the back of my mind, he might be thinking, you're the sacrifice. The Lord will provide was the answer. Of course, you know the story. They got up on the top of the hill. He bound his son, put him on the altar, almost was going to sacrifice him. And God said, stop. Because I know that you haven't withheld your only son, whom you love, I have provided a sacrifice in the bushes. And he looked over and inside the bushes there was a ram caught. And of course they made the swap. Took the ram, put it on the altar, sacrificed the ram. And the whole point of that story is to give us a picture 
of what God was going to do. Now listen, beginning with Abraham, you had this promise that was given, and that promise would be fulfilled 42 generations later. You want to tell me that God is sometimes slow? That's slow. But God's slowness is only because we don't understand the full picture of what God wants to do. In the slowness of God, He's extending grace upon grace upon grace. You can believe that all of God's slowness is because He's seeking to extend grace to everybody who will receive His grace. And that's actually why I believe what is going on right now. Why hasn't Jesus come back to return and to take His church? Only because of the grace of God so that all might know that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's His grace that's the only thing holding Him back. So here's the thing. Abraham was going to offer Isaac. God intervened, made a promise, and, and one of the really cool things about this story is this. Most scholars believe, and I've looked at it, and I believe it too because the evidence is pretty conclusive, that the place where Abraham offered Isaac is the same place where Jesus was crucified. It is the same place. Geographically, if you look at how, uh, how the scripture explains it, isn't that exactly what God tends to do over and over? What he starts, he comes all the way around in his own time and he finishes. And I think that he does that to remind us, this is not an accident. This didn't just happen. It has been in my heart from the very beginning to redeem a lost people. So you have Abraham, you have Isaac, and then Isaac had two children, and or he had a bunch, but Isaac's two children that, that we, we really look at is who? Jacob and Esau. There was struggle. Now, how do we know there was struggle? Because the Bible tells us that when Jacob uh, uh, and Esau were being born, Jacob was grasping at his brother's heel. He was always wanting what his brother had. He was always striving. He became a conniver and he became a schemer and he became a manipulator. He became one who would use trickery and he would become one who didn't have much character. He was one, by all accounts, very selfish. This is in the line of Jesus. And you know the story. I talked about it just a couple of weeks ago. Jacob deceived his own brother for the birthright from his father... So he swindled his brother, and then he swindled his father, and then he ran away afraid for his life. And then when he went away, he was swindled by his soon-to-be father-in-law. He said, man, your daughter is beautiful. I'll take her. It'll take me seven years to work off the debt, but I'll do it. She's the, one, the woman of my dreams. And at the wedding time, he, I, I just believe he lifted up the veil, and he's like, whoa, this isn't the right one. He's like, oh, no, no, the way it goes is you get the old one first. And so, as you know the story, he had to work another seven years for the father layman's second child. And if you are not understanding, if you don't know these stories in Scripture, you're probably looking at me going, that's just weird stuff. Yeah, that's kind of the point. That's really weird stuff. We're only like three people in. I mean, how in the world can anything good come from this kind of mass dysfunction. That'd actually be a great name for a church. I'm going to start a new church, the church of mass dysfunction. Right? 
Look at the person next to you. Just say, man, you are, you're messed up. <laughs> yeah, you can say, don't judge me. But the truth is, if we realize this, we realize our need for the gospel. This is why the gospel is so important. Okay, I better finish. <laughs> We're on chapter th verse 3, right? We only got 15 left. So, um... He has these brothers. Uh, Jacob and Esau, there was dysfunction there. Uh, Jacob finally comes back and reconciles with his brother, but God continues to bless him even in the midst of this function. And then uh, Jacob has a bunch of kids. One of the sons is Judah. And if you know the story of Jacob, Jacob had Benjamin and Jacob had uh, Joseph. And you have all of these brothers and they fought against each other. And Joseph got a coat from his father because his father loved him a little bit more, right? It, you know, when Christmas comes around, Joseph got the bigger gifts, right? Everybody else got three gifts. He got ten. I mean, there was obviously some animosity between the brothers. One of those brothers was Judah. And Judah had a dysfunctional family as well. In fact, you and I would say this is really dysfunctional. Because this is the first verse in this whole lineage that Jesus begins to introduce four women. Now, ordinarily, you wouldn't introduce four women in a genealogy. You wouldn't want to do this because it was a very patriarchal society. And so you'd want to keep, you know, you'd want to keep all the questions out. But in God's infinite wisdom and maybe just to mess with us, right? He might have just been trying to shake the apple cart of the Jews who would be reading this. He says, I'm going to introduce four women, but not just any women. I'm going to introduce four prostitutes in the line of Jesus. You want to tell me God can't redeem the worst of the worst? Excuse me, the worst of the worst situations? In the line of Jesus are four prostitutes. Here's the first one. Judah had sons and the sons married daughters or the sons married women. Those sons died and one of the daughter-in-law, one of the daughter's daughter-in-law's name was Tamar. She and another daughter-in-law tricked the father Judah and he slept with them became pregnant and then went back to Judah and said, this child is yours. Now we're talking Jerry Springer kind of stuff here. I mean, you, you're, somebody's going to pick up a chair at this point, right? Tamar has these two sons, Perez and Hezron, or, or excuse me, Perez and Zerah. And then they have sons, and then if you skip on down, we can't go through all of these. You skip on down to the next woman that's mentioned in verse 5. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Here's what happened here. Rahab, in Joshua chapter 6, was a prostitute. And she saw two men come into the city and she knew that God was up to something. And she saw that these two men needed an escape from the people of the city. And so she brought them into her house and she hid them. And she told them, I know that the God you serve, basically, I know your spies and I know that the God you serve is about to take this city down. And I know that everybody in this city is going to be punished 
and God is going to give you this city. I'm rescuing you, and the only thing I ask in return is that you, that you save my, my life and my family's life. The two spies made a deal with her. They said, look, if you tie this cord outside your window, and if you make sure that you are inside the house under the protection, there is, by the way, some, uh, 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 some beautiful picture, uh, uh, beautiful symbolic meaning to that whole thing. We don't have time to talk about it now, but if you stay inside of the covering of this home, when God gives us this city, you will be spared. If you go outside of the home, you'll not be spared, but if you stay in here, that scarlet thread, ding, 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 that will keep you safe. And sure enough, the city was uh, 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 conquered. God gave the Israelites the city. Remember the walls of Jericho fell down, right? The Israelites now had the city, and so Rahab was brought into the Jewish line, so she intermarried with one of the men whose name is Solomon. And they had a, guy, a kid by the name of Boaz. Boaz was a man who married a woman by the name of Ruth. Here's your third. Now, Ruth was not a Jew. Ruth was married into the family, but her husband died, and her mother-in-law said to, to Ruth, go and just go back to your country, go with your people, I'll make it on my own. And Ruth said, no, I'm not going to leave you. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you stay, I will stay. And Naomi said, well, well this is great. Well, Boaz sees them working in the field, and he takes it upon himself to fulfill the responsibility of being Ruth's kinsman redeemer. So in the Old Testament law, if you have a person who doesn't have any children, a woman who doesn't have any children, if you have a woman who, who doesn't have a father, then someone in the family would marry and bring them under into their household, and the purpose was to provide for the woman, because remember, very patriarchal society, provide for the woman, keep her safe, and make sure that she is not injured, which tells us about the heartbeat of God for those who are weak and those who are marginalized, does it not? This is the gospel. And so Boaz marries Ruth, and because of that, they have a son named Obed, and Obed fathers Jesse, and Jesse has a bunch of sons, one of which is the youngest called David. And if you remember, the prophet Samuel goes to Jesse because the people want a king. And Jesse says to the prophet, here's my boys. They're all lined up from oldest to youngest, from strongest to lately strong. Samuel walks by and, you know, he's maybe testing their teeth and stuff, you know, opening them, I don't know. He's, he's looking at him, he's like, you know what, none of these, are, do you sure you don't have any other sons? And Jesse goes, well, I got David. But I mean, you know, David's out in the field. He's certainly not the guy you're looking for. Go call him. David comes in and when he comes in, God says, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. David is the only person in scripture that the Bible says was a man after God's own heart. See, here's what we know. Just because there's a history of dysfunction doesn't mean that God is not going to rise up inside of that family line some people who are righteous and some people who will have faith in what God says. But even those people who are righteous will still fall at some points. Because there's none of us who are righteous. There are none of us who are perfect in every way. And so this... This young man, David, finally becomes king. And as king, 
he rules well except for he's on his rooftop one night and he looks over and he sees this woman named Bathsheba. And the Bible says that it is the wife of Uriah. This is the fourth woman. He looks down and he says, go get her for me. She comes in, he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. Now you know the story too, right? So let me see. So far, we've got liars, we've got murderers, we've got thieves, we've got uh, prostitutes, we've got uh, all kinds of indiscretion. I think it's safe to say by this time, the obvious is Jesus would come from a different line. But God is the great redeemer. It's what God does. You know the story. The child dies. Bathsheba gets pregnant again, and she gives birth to a son named Solomon. Solomon becomes the wisest king, the richest king that the nation has ever, ever known or seen. In fact, the, the, the richest and wisest ever in the history of the world, I believe, even until now. God blessed him and blessed him and blessed him, but even Solomon went on the wrong path. The Bible tells us that Solomon's downfall was his many wives. He went from nation to nation to nation collecting women as his wives. He had so many wives, I don't know how in the world he thought this was a good idea. And I'm not, I'm not being ugly, I'm just saying, uh, seriously, does anybody think that having 700 wives is a good idea? Or se could you imagine 700 husbands? Could you imagine cooking Thanksgiving dinner with 700 women in the kitchen? <laughs> right? Or could you imagine any of the details that you have to deal with? I mean, he had somebody everywhere. But the Bible says that his heart, the older he got, his heart went away from the Lord and he was not faithful. And he started to build idols and altars to the gods of his wives. So his heart turned from the Lord. And as a result, it brought calamity upon him. Here's what we know. In every single one of these men and in every single one of these women, they were, they were most of them, or at least a portion of them, were, were faithful in some ways, and yet they failed in other ways. God blessed them and God dealt with them according to his promise, but also according to their obedience. If you continue all the way down the line... I'm going to tell you about one other. The final person that I want you to look at is this. In verse 11, And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile. Jeconiah is important here. Because Jeremiah 22 tells us that Jeconiah was wicked. And because of his wickedness, God said to him, It will be as if you were childless and none of your, none of your descendants will ever be on a throne. Say, so, well, wait a minute. How's that happen? It happened because the lot, because if you have, like, uh, uh, if you have a, a man and he has two wives, and each of those wives have sons, both, both sons are his blood, right? So the line can go this way or the line can go this way, right? It just so happens that the line that goes this way for Jeconiah that Joseph was part of his lineage. David was over here. But, but uh, uh, the lineage from Jeconiah was Joseph. Right? Here's the problem. 
Jesus was the son of Joseph, right? Well, yes and no. This is important because Joseph was not the blood father of Jesus. He was the legal father of Jesus. As a result, the promise to Jeconiah that he would not have a son on the throne doesn't apply to Jesus because Jesus didn't come from that bloodline. Jesus had the bloodline that was to David through Mary's lineage. So Jesus was a legal son of Joseph and he was a blood son of Mary. And because of both of those lineages, it says Jesus has the legal and the blood right to be king but not just a king, king of all kings. If you followed through this story, which we're out of time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start wrapping it up. But here's the thing. I hope you've seen that the dysfunction runs thick in the first chapter of Matthew. I hope you see that the stories that are told make you blush and they cause shame and they cause really repulsion. Some of the things that these guys did were absolutely repulsive. And yet God still redeemed his own purposes in them and through them. Your dysfunctional family continues with you or it ends with you. I know a man who, he told me, he said, you know, my goal in life is to change the story of my family. He said, my family's got suicide. My family's got death. My family's got prison. My family's got rap sheets. My family's got divorce. My family's got everything in it. I don't want my boys to ever have to deal with that. And he turned his life to Jesus. He's not perfect. He'll be the first to tell you that, but he will also tell you that he turned his life to Jesus because he wants his boys to have a godly legacy, not the legacy of the past. I talked to a man just this past week. He's a pastor for 45 years, and he was telling me that his grandfather pastored a church just around the corner from him for a very short period of time, and then his grandfather found that he could make a little bit of money. And, and my friend said, look, my grandfather exchanged the pulpit for wealth. He lived his entire life. I never knew anything of him except him living for stuff. And he had lots and lots of stuff until at the end of his days before he died, he repented and said, Lord, I have sinned. I have left a legacy of things. I've not left a legacy of faith. Here's a really cool part though. That grandfather's son became an evangelist, impacted hundreds if not thousands of people with the gospel. That grandfather's grandson became a pastor who pastored two churches in his lifetime, one of them for about six or seven years, the other one that he's still pastoring now for 45 years. They changed the trajectory of their family lineage. Not perfect, but all the dysfunction in the world could not change the redemption that God had purposed for his family. And so this morning, I want to invite you to be like Joseph. If you go on to the next 
chapter, the next verse, verse 18 and following, Joseph, the Bible says, was a righteous man. He found out that Mary, the woman he was engaged to be married to, was pregnant. And surely he thought, you know, you deserve death because the law says in Deuteronomy that if you are engaged to be married and you are unfaithful, you die by stoning and the person who is unfaithful with you dies by stoning. That's the law. So the man and the woman were sentenced to death. But Joseph said, I want to spare you that shame and embarrassment. I am going to continue forward. And he, he was actually thinking, I'm going to divorce you quietly so as to not embarrass you. But God spoke to him and said, this is of my doing. And what you have is the virgin birth. If you've ever wondered why that was necessary, now you know. Not only to fulfill prophecy, but also so that the bloodline and the legal line could be reconciled. This morning, my prayer and my question for you is this. Will you let your dysfunctional family keep a hold of you? Will you fulfill the dysfunction that has been passed down from generation to generation? Or will it stop with you? Will you allow yourself grace when you see that thing coming back up? But would you also say, even though that's stomping at my door, that's not who I am. I have been bought with the price by the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish. I have been redeemed and I have been changed. I'm a new person. I have a new name. God has redeemed me for his glory. Which row will you choose? Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, I thank you for your goodness and I pray that you would help us to see the marvelous beauty of you taking the worst of the worst and doing something beautiful through it. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to trust you even when things don't make sense. Thank you for sending this little baby boy as the king of all kings. Lord, as we go into this week and as we celebrate Christmas towards the end of the week, May the hustle and bustle and the busyness not prevent us from peace and from calmness and from kindness. We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Find out more about First Baptist Church Gulf Breeze at fbcgulfbreeze.org.